Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a cranberry vodka. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a green apple soju, and on this week's episode, we're going to look at a case that caused moral panic in Japan, the otaku murders. This case caused the general Japanese public to take a harder look at the influence of entertainment mediums and the role of parents in the crimes of their child. This case starts on August 22nd, 1988, when four-year-old Mari Kono went missing while she was at a friend's house. She was taken to a wooded area and murdered. Her corpse was then molested and her body was left in a hill near his home. He then returned to her body to remove her hands and feet, which he then kept in his closet. He then burned Kono's remaining bones in his furnace, ground them up into a powder, and sent them to her family in a box, along with several of her teeth, photos of her clothes, and a postcard which read, quote, Mari cremated bones investigate prove end quote the next murder took place on october 3rd 1988 when seven-year-old mayasami yoshizawa was abducted while walking along a rural road she was off for a ride and her murder took place in the same wooded areas as kona once again he engaged in sexual acts with the corpse the third murder started with the kidnapping of four-year-old erica namba who was forced into her car after leaving a friend's house Erica was forced to disrobe in the car and her abductor took photos of her body. He then disposed of Namba's clothes in a wooded area and left her body in the adjoining parking lot where it was discovered three days later. On December 20th, Namba's family received a postcard with a message assembled using words cut out of magazines. Quote, Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death, end quote. On June 6, 1989, the otaku murderer convinced Fire Road Ayako Nomato to allow him to take photos of her. He then led her to his car and murdered her, covered her corpse with a bed sheet, and placed her in his trunk. He then took the corpse into his apartment and spent the next two days engaging in sexual acts with it, taking photos and videos of it in various positions. When Nomato's corpse began to decompose, it was dismembered and her torso was abandoned in a cemetery with her head left in the nearby hills. He kept her hands, drinking blood from and cannibalizing them. The otaku murderer was caught when he separated the younger of two sisters. He was taking photographs of the younger daughter, who he had convinced to strip nude, when he was caught by their father, who attacked him but was unable to restrain him. He fled to his car, where he was apprehended by police who were responding to the father's call. The otaku murderer was identified as Tsutomu Miyazaki. A search of Miyazaki's two-room bungalow produced 5,763 videotapes, some containing anime and slasher films. He had added video footage of his victims in those videos. The Japanese media dubbed him the otaku murderer due to his collection of anime and the fact he was a horror fan. Otaku refers to people with consuming interest, particularly in anime and manga. Miyazaki's trial began on March 30th, 1990. Miyazaki blamed his actions on quote-unquote rat man, an alter ego he claimed forced him to kill and would often spend time during the trial drawing rat man in cartoon form. Miyazaki's father refused to pay for his son's legal defense and committed suicide in 1994. His trial lasted seven years and ended with Miyazaki being found guilty and sentenced to death. Minister of Justice Kunio Hatoyama signed Miyazaki's death warrant on June 17, 2008, and he was hanged at the Tokyo Detention House that same day. 
Miyazaki's obsession with anime and manga caused Japanese media outlets to link otaku culture with violence and defiance. Newspapers claimed that Miyazaki had retreated into a fantasy world of manga as a result of his neglected upbringing. Kaigo Okonogi, a psychoanalyst at Tokyo International University, told the Shukan Post that, quote, the danger of a whole generation of youth who do not even experience the most primary of two or three-way relationship between themselves and their mother and father and who cannot make the transition from a fantasy world of videos and manga to reality is now extreme, end quote. Jenny, what are your thoughts on this case? I think it's probably one of the most gruesome that we've discussed on the podcast. It's like terror. There's no other way to describe it. My initial thoughts are just horrific, disgusting, violent, senseless. Definitely got some type of gratification from murdering these girls. We'll talk about this later. I don't think it's fair to necessarily blame his interest in horror and anime and calling him an otaku as reason for why he committed these crimes. Frankly, I think he might be one of those people that was just born evil. What he did to the girls and how he tortured their families and sent them postcards and he like talked to the newspapers too to really like gloat is really just horrific and disgusting. And I know I don't support the death penalty and Del, I know you don't, but I mean, I think that was honestly the right punishment in this case. What about you? What do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. This is one of the most horrific cases that we've looked at. And one of those cases where the punishment, it does fit the crime. And I think one of the interesting elements was how it seemed like the media wanted to blame everyone but the actual perpetrator in this case. You know, they wanted to say it was otaku culture. They wanted to say it was anime. They wanted to say it was manga. They wanted to say it was his parents. Everything was saying that, no, this guy is a bad guy. This guy is someone who cannot be trusted to be around in society. And he's someone who had a thirst for blood and had a sexual appetite for children. Though he was found competent enough to stand trial, I don't think that eliminates him having some very deep-seated mental health issues. Absolutely. I've said this before, but I think being evil is a mental health issue. I do kind of think some people are just born that way and some people are made evil, sculpted to be evil based off their upbringings. And it seems like he really, like I said, was born evil. As we stated at the beginning, this case caused a moral panic in Japan. One of the main aspects of this moral panic was what is termed otaku culture. Otaku culture is, again, simply something that describes people with a consuming interest, particularly in anime and manga. Its contemporary use originated with a 1983 essay by Akio Nakamori in Manga Baruka. In modern Japanese, slang, the term otaku is most equivalent to geek or nerd. Otaku may be used as a pejorative with its negativity stemming from a stereotypical view of otakus as social outcasts. And a lot of times they might apply this term to both people that are Japanese and foreigners who take an interest in Japan, Japanese culture, otaku culture. According to studies published in 2013, the term has become less negative recently and an increasing number of people now identify themselves as otakus. Out of 137,730 
2014 survey in Japan, in 2013, 42.2% self-identify as otaku. In 2005, the economic impact of otaku culture was estimated to be as high as 2 trillion yen, which is equivalent to $18 billion. Jenny, what are your thoughts on otaku culture? It definitely seems like it was just misunderstood at the time of the otaku murders. Honestly, kind of reminds me about how in the 70s and 80s when Dungeons and Dragons was kind of new and getting really popular, people were really scared of that and thought it was like a devil worship game and it was like bad black magic and stuff. And it's harmless, really. It's just a harmless role-playing game. I'm sure that people that were into that would, you know, be called nerds and geeks too back then maybe even today. It's nice to see that otaku is not as stigmatized now because everyone has their something. Everyone is really passionate or really into something. And, you know, maybe sometimes those people can get a little annoying and have, you know, the loudest opinion in the room and want everyone to know that they're an expert on whatever topic. But it's kind of cool, in my opinion, to see how many people would self-identify as otaku. It seems, based off this one video I watched um, with street interviews in Japan, it seems like it's a little bit of a a mixed bag still some people have like a negative connotation of it and some people have a more positive connotation of it but I think that would be pretty similar to things like Star Wars and comic books and even anime in America too I know Del when you and I were younger I think anime was really like the weird kid thing and now it's much more popular and mainstream I would say I know with Netflix and streaming services people can really easily watch animes and realize that they are into it I was really into Pokemon when I was little and that's an anime and I think people sometimes forget that Sailor Moon too was like another pretty mainstream anime and I just wanted to say that one person from a group doesn't speak for everyone and I think the Japanese media really blew his connection to anime and otaku culture out of proportion. So I definitely agree with you. I'm someone who has always loved Japanese culture from anime, manga, the food, just in general, I love Japan. Like you said, there's something inherently wrong with it. I think that it's wrong to say that one particular form of entertainment can't have a passionate fandom. Because you would never go to Comic-Con and tell the people that are attending there that they are linked to murderers and that they're horrible people and that they're the reason why society is going down. You would never do that. And so the fact that I think that while the stigma is going down, there is still some inclination to demonize and stigmatize otakus, especially foreign otakus. I think that's sad. I think that people should be able, like you said, to enjoy what they want to enjoy without feeling the need to overcompensate for it in other ways. You mentioning that also makes me think in the United States, sports is really like a big deal, especially football. And people get so over the top with stuff like that. People will riot whether their team wins or loses like a really big game. And we don't really consider those people super violent, drunken idiots. And if we do, maybe it's just for like a day or like the week after this like big incident happens. But we, you know, as a whole aren't like blaming this violent games football for example we're not blaming the violence in football 
for these people's violent activities afterward. Exactly. And I would bet money that more damage has come from those type of celebrations or riots after losing than has come from otaku culture, especially in the United States. Another area of moral panic in Japan, the United States, and elsewhere is the supposed negative effects video games containing violence and adult themes have on individuals. Politicians, parents, and other activists have claimed that violent video games can be tied to violent behavior, particularly in children, and have sought ways to regulate the sale of video games. Numerous studies have shown no connection between video games and violent behavior. The policy statement of the American Psychological Association, or the APA, related to video games states, quote, Scant evidence has emerged that makes any casual or correlation connection between playing violent video games and actually committing violent activities, end quote. The APA has acknowledged that video games may lead to aggressive behavior as well as antisocial behavior, but clarifies that not all aggressive behavior is necessarily violent. Christopher Ferguson, professor at Stetson University and a member of the APA, has researched the connection between violent video games and violent behavior for years. Ferguson's most recent studies have shown that there is no predictive behavior that can be inferred from the playing of violent video games. In 2009, a report of three studies conducted among students of different age groups in Singapore, Japan, and the United States found that pro-social, mostly non-violent games increased helpful pro-social behavior among the participants. On the other side of this debate, David Grossman described first-person shooter games as murder simulators and argued that video game publishers unethically train children in the use of weapons and harden them emotionally towards commitments of murder by simulating the killing of hundreds or thousands of opponents in a single typical video game. In 2005, a study at Iowa State University and the University of Michigan by Nicholas L. Carnegie and colleagues found that participants who had previously played a violent video game had lower heart rate and galvanic skin response while viewing filmed real violence, demonstrating a physiological desensitization to violence. Since the late 1990s, some real-world acts of violence have been highly publicized in relation to beliefs that suspects in the crime may have had a history of playing violent video games. The Columbine High School shooting being the most famous example of this. Jenny, do you think violent video games contribute to negative behaviors? And what restrictions would you place on video games that contain mature themes? I don't think it takes much to realize that it does desensitize people, and these studies clearly show that it is desensitizing people to violence. I don't think that's a good thing, but I also know I'm personally desensitized to violent crimes because I watch the news, too. I think it's a lot, and I think maybe it's more of a cultural thing than like a video game issue when it comes down to violent or like negative behavior. For restrictions, I know that in America, at least, Del, I know you're a big gamer, so correct me if I'm wrong, but in America, the games are labeled. Um, and, you know, if there's a mature rating, it's clearly labeled on the box, but that doesn't really mean stuff to a lot of people. People will still just get their kids violent video games anyway. I don't know what other restrictions can really be in place other than these ratings. Del, as a gamer, do you have any thoughts on that? So I personally don't think that really any restrictions should be placed on video games. At the end of the day, it's not real. 
And I think that what would help more is to use video games as a tool for teaching versus trying to restrict them. I play all sorts of games. And when I am playing shooter type games, I will jump into a lobby and clearly hear very young voices. And what is disheartening is the fact that because of how things are set up, they're not learning anything. They're not growing. They're not learning social skills. But video games can be used in that way. And I think that it's always strange when I hear the latest lawsuit that's being lodged against a rock star or any other gaming developer because of what parents think their job is. It's like, no, their job is to create video games. That's it. They create video games. It goes to the rating board and they give it a rating. If you as a parent have decided to either purchase the game for your child or giving your child some other means to purchase the game, such as putting your credit card on the gaming system, that's on you. It is not the video games industry job to make sure that your child is not being exposed to things that you don't want your child exposed to. As the study showed, there are no links between violent people and gamers. We are two separate groups of people and the fact that people that are acting in bad faith always want to link the two together just shows that they know they don't have any argument. I know that there is the conversation about being desensitized to violence, but like you stated, if you watch the news, that can happen. Are we saying that news watchers are violent and more likely to go out and shoot someone? No, we're not doing that. So, you know, let's not do that with gamers. Those are all really good points. And I completely agree. I think too many times with movies and TV shows, parents rely too much on other people to kind of help dictate what their kids should watch or what their kids should be exposed to because not everything out in this world is meant for children and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's almost like an excuse to not be as active in your child's life. Maybe it's not realistic for parents to research every video game or every movie that their kid wants to play or go see, but maybe you should take the time to do that to an extent even to understand what this video game involves if this is something you are really upset about because you know video games are just like a part of life now and I'm not a gamer but if I had to pick a game that I love it's the sims and even that can get kind of violent people always joke how one of the biggest draws or like one of the funny parts of the sims is how you can go and like kill your sim in a swimming pool or you know burn their house down even something like as simple as pokemon like I mentioned earlier is still like violent in a way I don't know there's fighting between like creatures I think people just really need to play like a more active role and to think for themselves about what they would want their child exposed to and accept that that does take some more work than people might want yeah I absolutely agree with you and one point that I want to bring back up is when you stated that not everything is made for kids and that's okay and I think that's a really important point because I think a lot of times people try to restrict things for adults based off the needs of children that's not right children should have spaces that are safe and productive and thriving and those should be spaces separate from adults so the last thing we're going to discuss is the level of responsibility a parent holds for the actions of their offspring one thing about this case that stood out was the suicide of the killer's father due to shame and the honor system that japan functions under many times when a serial killer is discovered people ask why didn't the parents do a better job raising them or why 
didn't the parents stop them because they should have known? Jenny, what level of responsibility do you place on the parents of killers? So I don't typically think it's fair to blame someone's behavior on their parent or their child or their spouse, anything like that. But I do think in some cases, especially if the parents are helping their children get away with crimes or providing them with weapons or a means to commit crimes or even ignoring certain behavior, like if a teacher is coming forward saying, hey, your kid pushed this kid and is causing issues, something like that. And if they're just flat out ignoring that behavior, I think they do need to be held accountable to some degree. With the honor system, I don't agree with that, but I know that it's part of other cultures, not really in America. So I do understand that. It is kind of sad that people feel so ashamed by their children's actions that, you know, in Miyazaki's case, his father killed himself. He was so ashamed and embarrassed. And I'm sure that's happened in America as well. I understand, of course, why you would feel very ashamed and embarrassed, especially if your child went on to commit such heinous crimes like Miyazaki did. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that at the end of the day, once a person is an adult, the parent does not hold any type of control over the actions of that person. And because of that, you can't blame them for what they do. Now, you can definitely look at the person's childhood and see what failings happen. But I think that's more of a, let's see what happened. Let's see if we can study this so that we can prevent this from happening again. People need to be careful extending blame to others because I really do think that it reduces the culpability of the person that actually did the crime. Because it's like, oh no, it wasn't just Miyazaki. It was his parents. It was his teachers. It was this person. It was that person. It's like, no, he did this. He committed this crime and he needs to have the full level of responsibility placed on his shoulders for that. Absolutely. And as far as we know, he didn't face like any abuse in his childhood, anything traumatic from his parents. And you're right, Del, he's an adult. He made these decisions by himself. And we've talked about this before, people wanting to blame everyone but the perpetrator for these crimes. I think we first talked about it in our Jeffrey Dahmer episode, but it's not fair. It's a strange thing. And I think as humans, it's hard to understand that not everyone has a reason for doing something. And it sucks. It's really awful when there's no reason that someone killed a bunch of little girls. But that's how things are, unfortunately. That's the reality. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the otaku murders. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on Operation Paperclip. As always, stay safe.